Let's pray. Father, we praise you for speaking to us through the Word, the Word incarnate, the Word inspired. Lord, we ask your help to understand now, to be changed by your Word. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority, Lord. Lord, you work through your word. You work through your word, spoken even through sinful men. We pray that we would know you, love you, and glorify you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you qualified? Are you qualified? If I were to ask you if you're qualified to do CPR, you might say, yes, I passed my CPR and first aid certification class. If I asked you if you're qualified to go into the White House, you might say, no, I don't have the credentials. If you're sitting with your friends and maybe talking about parenting and someone interjects, you'd probably ask for some qualifications. Do you have kids? How old are they? What's something that you're qualified to do? Might be your profession. You may be qualified to be a nurse, to fix my car, maybe to practice law. Maybe it's a skill that you've spent hours and years mastering. Allison's qualified to bake me something, and Ryan's qualified to play the guitar. Lewis is qualified to teach me Braille. Are you qualified to see the kingdom of God? In our passage this morning, Jesus encounters a man who seems to meet all the qualifications, but he's missing the one qualification necessary. Jesus is coming off a miraculous public appearance in John chapter 2. So if you want to turn back perhaps, a page in your Bibles, you can see that his first public sign is turning water into wine at a wedding. Look at the end of verse 11 in chapter 2. His disciples believed in him. Then he goes uh, to Jerusalem, and he causes a huge scene. He flips tables and rebukes those who are corrupting temple worship. Look again in verse 22. His disciples believed. Then in verse 23, many believed in his name. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. You could actually translate those words. Many trusted, but Jesus did not entrust himself. Well, why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knows that they're not qualified. He doesn't entrust himself to them, give himself over to them, because they don't fully and truly understand who he is. In fact, his disciples don't either. Think of all the times in the Gospels when Jesus has to rebuke his disciples because they just don't get it. They don't get who he is. It's not until late in the Gospel accounts that Jesus makes clear who he is, and really it's not until after his death and resurrection that his disciples 
rightly understand that he's the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus doesn't entrust himself to man, to these people, because they're not qualified, or at least not yet qualified. What is it in people that makes them unqualified to see, know, and trust Jesus? What is it in people that make them unqualified to see, know, and trust Jesus? Well, Jesus will tell us. Jesus, the author of life, the creator of man, will authoritatively tell us about man. So look now in chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3. There was a man. A man. So that's connecting us with the previous verse. This is one of those men that Jesus isn't entrusting himself to because Jesus knows what's in him. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. If anyone's qualified to know who Jesus is, surely it's this man. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's even a ruler. As a Jew, he had the privilege of growing up in a nation that God chose as his own. God chose to reveal himself to this nation, to these very people. They're the ones that have the scriptures. God, the only true God, has revealed himself to them. They have a measure of light, while other nations are left in utter darkness. But we'll see that there's still an individual blindness that keeps men like Nicodemus from seeing and understanding the light. If you'll notice, John points out that he came at night. That might be a clue that's helping us to see Nicodemus' spiritual state. Nicodemus is a Jew, and he's a Pharisee, even a leading or a ruling Pharisee. So he's among a privileged class of men who've spent their lives studying the Old Testament. This man knows the Bible like the back of his hand. And he proves that, his Bible knowledge, in what he says to Jesus. So Nicodemus astutely connects Jesus' ability to do signs with being from God. He knows that God gave signs to Moses to validate his message to Pharaoh. He knows that God gave signs to other prophets to show that their words were supernatural words. And so he sees Jesus' supernatural signs and associates them with supernatural teaching. Well, what's the supernatural teaching that he receives? Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of God. Jesus is giving the one qualification for seeing, for understanding, for entering the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that everything you think might qualify you to see and to understand and to teach heavenly things don't qualify you. He's saying your need is greater than you think. If you're taking notes this morning, that's our main point. Your need is greater than you think. Your birth, your learning, your leading, it all falls way short of the qualifications to see the kingdom of God. It's like showing up to a White House press conference with your high school ID. You're going to need a lot more than that to get in. Look at the word unless in verse 2. 
Look down at verse 2. Put your finger on the word unless in verse 2. Nicodemus is showing a need. He's showing a qualification to do the signs Jesus is doing. Unless God is with you, you can't do these supernatural signs. You need God to be with you in order to do the signs. Now put your finger on the word unless in verse 3. Jesus is picking up on that same concept. Unless you're born again, he says, you cannot see the kingdom. You need to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. Your natural birth, your family heritage, your learning doesn't make up for this need. Your need is greater than you think. And first this morning we'll see how Nicodemus's need shows us our need. And second, we'll see how God meets that need. First, we'll see that Nicodemus's need shows us our need. And second, we'll see how God meets that need. So first, Nicodemus's need shows us ours. His need, Jesus says, is to be born again. What does that mean? What, what does that imply, that phrase, to be born again? Culturally, someone might say they're a born-again believer in something, and it means they've changed or come to a new realization. I'm a born-again believer in allergy pills, for instance. I used to not like taking anything, but after about six sinus infections in, a, in the span of six months, I tried them, and now I think they're great. I'm a born-again believer in allergy pills. Uh, it might refer to a Christian that just takes her faith very seriously. A born-again Christian might be used as a term to distinguish oneself from cultural Christianity. Well, the words literally mean born, like the way a baby's born, and the word translated again has a double meaning. Uh, it, it could mean again, and it can mean from above, and I think Jesus means it both ways. He's saying your first birth wasn't enough. You need to be born a second time. And the second birth needs to have a heavenly origin. It's more than just a change of mind. It's more than just deciding to take your faith seriously. It's not less than those things, but it's more. It's an act that actually happens to you, that you don't really have a say in, in the same way you don't have a say in your natural birth. It happens. Lord willing, we'll continue studying this passage in John 3, uh, but we're stopping just at these first three verses today. Uh, throughout next Sunday and many other Sundays in the fall, Lord willing, like I said, we'll continue. We'll keep exploring the concept of new birth, of conversion, of what it means, how it happens, and what it looks like. Why? Why John 3? Why look into conversion and new birth and salvation? Let's pause, and I just want to give us three reasons why it's important to look at this together as a church. Well, first, God's glory depends on it. God's great work in this world and in the lives of his people is the work of salvation. It's his work, and he does it, Ephesians 1 tells us, to the praise of his glory. God does all things for his glory, but saving sinners and giving them new life in Christ is especially how he displays his glory in this world. 
Second, your soul depends on it. So God's glory depends on it. Second, your soul depends on it. What could be more important to make sure you get right than a doctrine that has eternal implications for your soul? God's kindly revealed how and why he saves. And he's revealed it so that we can study it, be comforted by it, and grow in it. And lastly, the health of our church at Millwood depends on this. If we get conversion wrong, we're getting the gospel wrong. And over time, we're going to start to look more and more like the world. So to take our covenant seriously, which says we will work together for the continuance of the faithful witness of this church, we have to have a strong understanding of conversion. So Lord willing, we'll continue in John 3 in future weeks, but we're stopping here this morning at Jesus' first reply to Nicodemus. We have to understand this first response if we're going to understand the rest of his discussion. Specifically, we're looking at the implication that Nicodemus has a need, that he's lacking something. And if this great man has a need, how much more do we? The way a hungry baby needs milk, the way a phone needs to be charged, we need new birth because we lack something. Well, what do we lack? We lack righteousness. We lack goodness. We lack spiritual life itself. We're deeply flawed. One way we could say it is that we're totally depraved. That's the way Jesus, who knows what's in man, is authoritatively describing man. That's the picture that the rest of the Bible paints of mankind as well. If we want to know ourselves, if we want to know what we need, we must listen to what God has to say about us. We have to submit ourselves to what the one who is above us tells us about ourselves. Understanding man's nature is foundational to the rest of our thinking about the Christian life. Listening to God's word on this topic will not only save us frustration and confusion, it'll also show us where we have to go. The way a golf coach might tell a brand new golfer the hard truth that he's not quite yet ready to go out and start competing, uh, we should hear what God has to say about mankind, as hard as it might be to hear. The Bible gives us bad news about humanity about human nature. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't sugarcoat things. But it's honest, and it's true. And I have to say, it's, it's part of what led to my own conversion. I was in college studying political science, and no one's description of ma mankind fit with what I saw around me or what I saw in myself. Why weren't government programs or these academic studies or social activists, why weren't any of them solving any of these major problems I was seeing in the world and seeing in my own life? The answer was they didn't have a biblical view of humanity. They told me that society and people are evolving, they're progressing, but I saw crumbling all around me. They told me right policies would fix problems, but they kept creating more problems. Only the Bible gave it to me straight. I had to hear the right, though hard, diagnosis before even thinking about the right solution. 
The diagnosis the Bible gives us is that we're guilty, we're bad, and we're spiritually dead. We're guilty, we're bad, and we're spiritually dead. As we talked about in building blocks, in the men's building blocks upstairs this morning, every human is born guilty, not innocent. Although God made man upright, innocent, when Adam sinned, he plunged not only himself, but all people that would come from him, all the people he represented, into a guilty state. That means that you and I were born guilty before our Creator. We were all represented by Adam. His one trespass, Romans 5.18 says, led to condemnation for all man. That's why people die. From babies to my great-grandmother who lived to over a hundred, all are condemned to death because Adam's sin has made us guilty, and the wages of sin is death. Friends, we're guilty from birth. The person who dies in his sins doesn't just stand before God to have his life weighed in a balance. He'll stand before God as a member of a guilty, rebellious race who have turned against our Creator. This is a hard truth, brothers and sisters, but the gospel depends on it. Because just as Adam's sin is attributed to us, Jesus' righteousness is just as freely attributed to us. Before you or I agreed to it, we were born guilty. But praise God that before we agreed to it, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, for those who would be born again. But we're not only passively guilty, all of us from birth gladly participate in this rebellion against God. We're bad. We are sinful. The Bible even says we're evil. Genesis 6 says that after the fall, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Pulling together a string of Old Testament quotes, Paul reaches the same conclusion in Romans 3, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Humans in our natural state, we aren't good. Humans aren't basically good who do some bad, wrong things sometimes. Humans aren't even mostly bad. The natural person is all bad all the time. Even if the natural person does something good, which natural people can do, his intentions aren't pure. His bad motives make even his best works impure. So even if our eyes see good, we have to submit to God's word, which says bad. And this guilt and evil has left us spiritually dead. The consequence promised to Adam for his sin in the garden is death, and so all in Adam have died. We not only die physically, but we're spiritually cut off from the one who is life himself. Ephesians 2 tells us that the state of humanity, apart from new birth, is dead. 
Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, what blessing did Adam have in the garden. He had fellowship with God. The earth was his. He was perfectly upright, righteous, and moral. The feeling of guilt was unknown to him. Sin and suffering were nowhere to be seen. And oh, what heights of blessing awaited him and potentially you and me, all of us, had he obeyed God, passed the test, and avoided eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eternal fellowship with God, eternal life, without even the threat of sickness, sorrow, suffering, or death was just around the corner. But Adam failed, and oh, what misery he plunged himself and all of us into. In Adam, all have died. All the problems of the world, all the suffering, all the pain, all the worry and woe, entered the world by one man's sin. Worse than that, we're now born sinners. We inherit our first father's sin nature. And the fact that we're born dead in sin, cut off from fellowship with God, is a worse misery than the natural suffering that we all endure. Worse than that cold you had, than your bad back, worse than the calamities and death all around us, is the fact that in our hearts we are born rebels against God. Evil, corrupt, sinful. There are too many other ways to describe what the Bible says about our natural state. Sick, blind, poor, slaves to sin. But there's just one punishment that awaits those described these ways. Hell. Eternally suffering the wrath of God. The problem is, None of us see ourselves this way. The unconverted person is likely to reject this entirely, but even the Christian, even the most sanctified man or woman that you know, still, until glory, will struggle to view themselves rightly. Even if we, sitting here today, agree doctrinally with all of this, functionally, we still don't have a high enough, I should really say a low enough view of our sin. The unconverted Christian, the unconverted person and the Christian alike fall short of this true view of the natural state of man. Sinful actions and dull hearts that are slow to worship reveal this. So how can we get a better, clearer view of ourselves? The first way we have to start is by looking to God. When we compare ourselves with one another, it's easy, it's easy enough to say, well, I'm not as good as that guy over there, but I'm better than that guy. What we have to do is to compare ourselves to God and to his perfect standard that perfectly reflects his nature. When we do that, we are left without excuse. So spend time contemplating God's goodness. Fight the temptation that I know is always pulling on me to distract yourself from spending time alone, silently thinking about God. It's too easy to distract ourselves with 
podcasts, videos, music, even really good things like listening to recorded sermons or gathering with other people. We can even use good things to distract ourselves from this task. To spend time alone thinking about God, thinking about His goodness, thinking about our sin. The longer you spend meditating on Him, the more repulsive your sin will seem. Others, too, can help us see ourselves and our sin better than we can. So press into church membership. If you're a member here, you've covenanted with other members who know that you are dead, you were dead in your sin, who know that you've been forgiven and who love you. So spend enough time with members so that they can know you enough to point out your sin and help you see yourself clearly. First time you're eating with someone, you might not point out that they have something in your teeth. But over time, you get more comfortable with them, and you're much more ready to do that. We all need to have our sins pointed out to us in a loving context. So press in to church membership. This doctrine of total depravity means that we cannot fix ourselves up. We don't just need reform. We're so bad we're so unable, we're so unfit for heaven that we need to be made wholly new. We're not an, a laptop that's running slowly and needs to install some updates. We're dead, and every time the user goes to turn it on, we shock him. And I think that's precisely what makes the Christian worldview, the Christian religion, the Christian faith offensive. This is offensive to Nicodemus. It's offensive to our old man, it's offensive to our current self-righteousness, and it's offensive to our culture. You're not just bad and in need of fixing up. You're so bad that you need to be wiped out and remade. This is what's offensive. It's not saying something's wrong with us that offends people. Some people might get pretty upset if you tell them that, but most people will agree that they're not as good as they ought to be or as good as they could be. That's why therapists, uh, AA, even some charities exist. There are plenty of groups that will help you to be a better person. It's not even the exclusivity of Christianity that's what's truly offensive. Plenty of other religions are exclusive. Muslims say that if you don't believe that there's, one God, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, if you don't believe that, they say hell. It's not even Jesus that's offensive. Plenty of other religions say that Jesus or someone masquerading as him is necessary for salvation. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, even Roman Catholics and liberal Protestants will say that we need Jesus. Plenty of worldviews say you need to reform yourself. You need to get better. They may even say you need Jesus to help you with that. But biblical Christianity alone says you're dead and you need God to regenerate you. Biblical Christianity loves you enough to tell you you're not, nor will you ever be good enough or qualified to see the kingdom of God. You need to be wiped out, reborn, and made new. Do you see Jesus' love in telling Nicodemus this? 
Does this truth sound like love to you? Our temptation, the temptation that all these other worldviews give into, is to deny this truth and seek another solution. We, in our self-righteousness, want to hang on to some ability in us, something in us that earns the right, the ability to see the kingdom of God. Whether you say, as long as I don't hurt anyone else, I'm a good person, as long as I don't cross this line, or you say, as long as I make the right decision to say that prayer, God owes me the right to see the kingdom of God. But we're not able. We're dead. And that might tempt us to think that we're without hope. But Jesus doesn't leave Nicodemus without hope. Jesus could have told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're dead and you're sin, and left it at that. It would have been true. But that's not what he says. He gives him hope. He tells him how God meets his great need, his need that Nicodemus doesn't even fully realize that he has yet. So number two this morning, how God meets this need. Jesus promises that God gives new birth. He wouldn't give this one qualification that you be born again if there was no hope to be born again. Jesus' words, unless one is born again, imply not only our need, but they also tell us that God meets that need. Jesus, the author of life, raises dead men to life. He says later in John that he's the resurrection and the life. He calls Lazarus, who's been dead for many days, out of the tomb, and Lazarus responds. He rises up and walks out. He doesn't wait for Lazarus to say, please raise me. He calls him out of the grave, and Lazarus responds. Jesus is life. Jesus is God. He has life in himself, and he breathes life into spiritually dead people. Jesus is the one without sin who sacrificed himself for the sake of sinners, purchasing forgiveness. He has the authority to forgive sinners, to forgive the guilty, so that we can stand before God under no condemnation, but as righteous. Jesus is the one who breathes out his spirit, who changes our sinful hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. By his spirit, Jesus deals with our wickedness and our evil. He grants repentance and faith to turn from our old life to the new. Jesus makes hearts that were wholly inclined to evil, now inclined to what's good and beautiful and true to God. God in Christ raises the dead to life, forgives their sin, and gives them new hearts with new desires. If you've not trusted in Christ, come to Him today. Trust in the only one who can raise you to life, forgive your sin, and change your heart. In Christ, God makes us wholly new. The Christian isn't one who's cleaned himself up. The Christian isn't one who's realized that his sin is making his life hard, so he's resolved to turn himself around, to turn over a new leaf. The Christian isn't one who thinks that the Bible makes the most sense philosophically and rightly understands the doctrines of grace and can quote to you a bunch of Bible verses. 
The Christian is one who's come face to face with the living and holy God and said with Isaiah, woe is me. The hot coals have touched more than just his lips, but have burned the Christian to the core. The Christian has seen her life and her sin and felt there's nothing she can do but die. Then the Christian dies. The Christian is put to death. The old man, the old woman, is crucified with Christ, buried with him in baptism, and is glad for it because the old man has no place in the kingdom of God. But the Christian's one who's come face to face with God and seen his grace, he's been born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Christian's been raised to new life in Christ. The new man hates the old man. He's not sinless, but he hates his sin, turns from his sin, and by the power of the Spirit sees victory over his sin. Does your life look new? Have you been touched by the fiery coals of God's grace? If so, there will be evidence. You can't hold fire close to your chest and not be burned. Is there evidence of life in your heart? Evidence of faith? Evidence of a love for God and for others? As John Piper says, I know that I'm alive not because I have a birth certificate, but because I'm breathing. So what should we do with this doctrine? of total depravity, of total inability, and of the need to be born again, born from above. Well, here are six takeaways we can walk away with this morning in light of this. First, here's what the doctrine isn't for. It's not to make you miserable. This doctrine will make you humble, but it's not to make you miserable. What it does do is reveal and explain your misery. If hearing this and thinking about this brings up feelings of guilt, depression, fear, discomfort, even maybe a little bit of anger, don't run away from those feelings. Don't try and ease those uncomfortable feelings and thoughts by adjusting this doctrine. Rather, take them to the cross. Let the truth of your need for new birth drive you to the author of life. The only relief from the misery that the human race has been plunged into is the merciful God who offers salvation in Christ alone. Any other solution is just a distraction. This need for a new birth is not a doctrine to make you miserable, but one to relieve your misery by pointing you to the only solution. Robert Murray McShane said, for each look to yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. Our hearts are ugly, hard, and dead. His is beautiful. We have need, need greater than we realize. He has no need. He has the fullness of life and love, mercy, and grace in himself. 
And he delights to give from that fullness to humble, broken sinners who see their need. This doctrine isn't meant to drive you endlessly inward into despair. It's meant to show your need and drive you to Christ. As the hymn we sung this morning, another stanza it has says this, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Arise, go to Jesus. Second, like I said, this doctrine must humble us. This doctrine must make us humble. It should absolutely banish all pride. Both our need for new birth and God's gracious giving of it should humble us before God and before others. When we look at someone on the street, we're looking at a fellow sinner. When we look at someone in the pew next to us, in the seat next to us this morning, we're looking at a fellow justified sinner. There's nothing inherent in us that makes us more worthy and more valuable than they are. Third, this doctrine should make us the most grateful people in the entire world. We who were once dead in sin, children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says, have been born again, adopted by God. How grateful should a rebel be who's not only pardoned by the king, but brought in and made a member of the royal family. No one less worthy has received more kindness than rebel sinners adopted by God. So first, this doctrine is not to make you miserable. Second, it's to humble us. Third, it should make us grateful. Fourth, understanding man's sinful nature should make us patient people. Understanding that your neighbor is dead in sin, wholly inclined to evil, should keep you from being surprised when he sins against you. It should keep you from frustration when your children continue to disobey. It should make you compassionate towards them rather than angry with them. And it should make you patient also in prayer, pleading with God, the only one who can save them from their sin. Fifth is holiness. This afternoon, we don't have any evening gathering. Reading Romans 6 might be an appropriate addendum to this sermon. Romans 6 shows us that new birth must produce new life. Old sins, old habits, old temptations and tendencies must not define us any longer. So strive by the Spirit to put off the old man. Finally, sixthly, this doctrine affects church membership. Who is the church? Who can join? Anyone who wants to? Maybe only those who have reached a certain level of holiness, who've cleaned themselves up enough? The church is for those who have died with Christ, been buried with Him, and have been born again. The church is for living stones, not dead ones. Are you qualified to see the kingdom of God? In one sense, the answer is absolutely no. Absolutely not. No one is. But by God's grace, 
there's one qualification that he sovereignly provides. You have to be alive. You have to be born again. So let's pray as Paul does in Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father God, we pray to you who are sovereign, to you who are. You are the great I am. You have life in yourself, the perfection of all things in yourself, and you raise the dead to life by your word, by your spirit, by your work in Christ. Raise the dead to life, Lord. Help us to see the depths from which we have been brought up by your mercy alone. Make us humble. Make us joyful and grateful people, Lord. Make us those who proclaim your mercy to those who will be raised in no other way than hearing this truth of your grace in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.